Over the last two decades, I've been on a quest to learn everything I can about leadership, obsessed with what makes the best leaders so good. After running companies small and large for the last 20 years, today I speak on stages all across the world to audiences who are interested in that same question. My name's John Laredo, and I'm your host. I invite you to join me on this journey as we explore this topic, what makes the best leaders so good. Welcome to Tomorrow's Leader. All right, Tomorrow's Leaders, this is Tim Cole. He is the founder of the Compass Alliance, a consulting and training company that's focused on enhancing individual and organizational performance. He is a leadership guru right up my alley, and I loved talking to this guy. Wow, what a great conversation about leadership, all kinds of stuff, like tons of stuff. We fit a lot into this conversation and uh, some really cool stories, too. So without any further ado, you will enjoy this episode and pay attention to the action steps, the to-dos. I've got mine that I've got to do, and I'm going to. Here is Tim. All right, welcome to today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader, where we dive deep on all things leader-related, related to leading yourself and leading others. I am John Laredo, your host, today with a fantastic guest. Tim Cole is the founder of uh, the Compass Alliance, uh, which is a firm that helps uh, train individuals on peak performance and organizational performance and leadership. He is a leadership pro. Uh, I am thrilled to have him here. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. So it's. Uh, I know we got a chance to chat the other day. I loved our conversation, so I've been looking forward to getting into some more depth with you. Um, but probably a good place to start. I'd love for the listeners to just hear a little bit about your background before uh, the Compass Alliance. You had a really kind of uh, a storied history in the um, in the uh, life sciences field, I believe. Correct. I did. I did. Yeah, I uh, I stumbled John into life sciences. About a million years ago, I think it was shortly after Lincoln was assassinated, I uh, was very unprepared, unsuspecting, and uh, underqualified, but the job I took ended up evolving into a career. And as I mentioned, when you and I chatted before, managed to navigate, I think it was five mergers and acquisitions and about 26 restructures. And the day came that I stopped and looked around at the little company that I joined, which was, I think, maybe $75 million in annual revenue that at that point was one of the four or five largest in the world. And I reflected on the uh, scope of the journey and thought, you know, this has been fairly amazing. So I wrote a book. The book is called The Compass Solution, and it's a book on leadership. And uh, I would say that when I pause to reflect on everything that I experienced, I think probably the most pivotal event in my career was early on when I actually brushed up against an authentic leader, a transformational leader. And that changed, I think, the trajectory of the career, and it kind of filled me with a passion to better understand why aren't there more great leaders and what is it they do that distinguish them from everyone else? And that has become a lifelong obsession, one that now uh, informs a big part of my company, which is the Compass Alliance. Mm. I, I love situations like that because I, I've been um, also in my life impacted by a few key people, and they definitely changed the course of my life and what I'm doing. And that's the whole essence of leadership, I think. So what was it about this individual? What happened and what drew you to them that, that had such a big impact on you? Well, it's taken me years to really figure it out because at the very beginning, <clears throat> when I watched them and how they operated with others, I, I figured, well, I can, I can codify this. I can figure out the formula that they use and then I'll copy it. And 
I think my probative question was always the same thing. What is this person doing that makes all of us think so differently about them? And I think one day I had an epiphany and the epiphany was, it's not so much what they did that make us all think differently about them. It's what they do that make us think differently about ourselves. And so to answer your question, when I began to appreciate that the greatest of leaders really uh, influence the heart and the head, whereas the transactional man- managers, the pretenders, the actors kind of focus more on the hands and feet. And I never forgot that lesson. And when I look at the few transformational leaders that I have a chance to really interface with today, a lot of the same principles, I believe, really apply. Mm. Do you think most leaders are, are, are and that's a, a great way to put it, you know, the heart and the head versus the hands and the feet. Uh, do you find most leaders just naturally gravitate toward a transactional type of leadership style? I don't know if they gravitate there, but I think they find themselves there more often than not. You know, it's funny. I, I have a saying I use in some of our workshops, and I believe it. Those who cannot lead at best hope to manage and those who cannot manage at best hope to control and those who cannot control at best hope to coerce. And oftentimes in periods of crisis, I think it's easy to default to checkbook transactional kinds of management things. It's a lot harder, a lot harder to become over time a transformational leader. I, I use, um, <laughs> I have a, a little set of questions that I used to ask privately of the people that I reported to during my 38 years in life sciences. And I use those questions again and again and again, and I've used those to gauge whether or not the person I'm working with is someone that's truly a difference maker. And and it's amazing how often I I still use them. The questions that I always ask, and I think everyone asks of people they report to, number one is, are you credible? Because if you're not credible, you're not going to get the attention of the people that you're supposedly leading. The second is, can you help make me better? And those are basic questions all of us ask. But then you start getting, I think, into a different realm when you ask questions like, are you committed to a person that I can align, a purpose that I can align with? Now you're starting to, I think, delve into a different area. And the last two questions, do you care about me? And can I trust you? And that I think is the exclusive domain domain of transformational leaders. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you would ask those questions of people when you were, when leaders that you had, is that what you're saying? I didn't ask it of them, but I thought it. Yeah, and yeah. I continue to think it. And now when I work with uh, senior leaders in terms of executive coaching, I ask them if we were to take your direct reports and ask them to speak confidentially, but honestly, how many of them would say yes, 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 and yes to those five questions? And if the answers are maybe sort of, kind of, then that usually gives us fuel to take a look at where and what they're doing and how they're doing it. Okay. I like that. And I love those questions. And we'll put those in the show notes for the audience that's listening and wants to make sure they capture those. Um, what, let's dive into a couple of those because I, I think there's a lot there. When you talk about, uh, let's start with just credibility. I mean, there. I think leaders oftentimes are struggling and uh, you see the signs of the leader that's trying too hard to build almost this artificial credibility what does that look like to really do it in an authentic, real way? And where does credibility actually come from? No, oh, that's a great question. You know, it's funny. I have spent some time studying military history. I think there's a reason that a lot of second lieutenants die in battle. And it's because they've been accorded a rank 
but they don't have the respect of the troops that they're asked to lead. So to answer your question simply, I think two things at least that I look for when I look at credibility, I look at competency and I look at authenticity. Are they prepared for the job and are they authentic in terms of how they perform the job? And that's usually a pretty good starting point. I think you and I talked about before, I think there are a lot of people that get moved into management positions and they're afforded a title like a knighthood. And they assume that because they have the title, they're suddenly leaders. When more often than not, I found leadership, frankly, I'm not sure it has a lot to do with title. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because I think, and and this, for, for those listening at a different time, we're still in the middle of uh, of uh, the uh, pandemic here. And, and I think in this time of uncertainty over the last year, a lot of leaders have struggled because they've relied on trying to be that person that has all the answers all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you're thrust into a situation where nobody has all the answers, um, you know, they're, they're suddenly feeling like they're exposed or they're not useful or they're not credible anymore. What's your take on that? I mean, is that is credibility for that leader that may not know the answers? Is it okay for a leader to say, hey, you know what? I don't know the answers or I don't know what. How do they handle that? Yeah, you just said something that I think is incredibly valuable. If I were talking today to a group of would-be managers, whether they are first line, second line, vice president, divisional leaders, or even CEOs, I would say, here's three words it took me a long time to learn. And you just said them. I don't know. Because oftentimes, I think people thrust into a position of power think to admit, to demonstrate vulnerability is a weakness. And you know, and I know, it's actually the exact opposite. When you have the courage to say, I don't know, but together we'll find the answers, I think that is powerful and you hit it dead on. Yeah. And and I, I think to your point, authenticity is is really what leadership is all about. There's a time in my career where I felt like I had to be somebody that I really wasn't or play the role of this leader that or what I thought was a leader. And it was a really, number one, I wasn't effective. I wasn't nearly as effective once I realized that is not the way to lead. Um, but it was also this really unsettling feeling like I was I was an actor playing playing a role. And yeah. that can only go so long before there's that internal breakdown and internal rub. And that just, you know, you almost, it just, you see that with leaders a lot. Do you find that l- leaders that are newer are are kind of plagued with that problem. They're trying too hard. They're are they are they not trying? Is it is it for that new leader coming in that's listening? Uh, how much are they okay to just be themselves? Or you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about executive presence and where that comes from. But what's your take on that person that doesn't know? Okay, who should I be? Yeah, I, that's a good question. I'm not sure if it's uh, necessarily tied to tenure. I've worked with people that have 25, 30 years that still struggle with the same thing that you just described. I, I, I have found, uh, I'd mentioned, I do a lot of work in terms of communication and the assumption I think oftentimes is that great communicators are great orators or they're great writers. They're great in front of a group, but the greatest communicators honestly are capable of exactly what you just described. They can ask questions and then lo and behold, they can actually listen to the response. The strength of any team, as you know, is, really the combined genius. Um, If the leader, whoever he or she happens to be, thinks they are the smartest person in the room, they're probably destined to fail. Mm. 
And and that's such a great point and so well said because there's there's leaders that almost it seems like get threatened when they surround themselves or find themselves surrounded by people that are smarter than them or better than them or even the leader or other leaders that are progressing and growing faster. I've seen leaders and even worked with some that tend to almost try to put this you know cap on somebody or slow their growth because they feel like that's taking them out of the out of their role or relevance, making them irrelevant. Uh, do you see that as well? Is that a problem? Yeah, I think it's pretty common. Somebody gave me great advice early in my career. I had a lot of people. In fact, I should say, I mentioned the first transformational leader, but I have a lot of people that gave me gifts over the years. And one of the greatest gifts was someone who said to me, hey, hey buddy, your goal is not to create a crowd of followers. Your goal is to create a group of leaders. And you'll know that you've accomplished your primary task when if you're not there, they're capable of greatness. If they're dependent on you, you're not really a complete leader. You're just simply managing to an outcome. And I never forgot that. And over the years, I've begun to realize that if you really want to find a leader, look at the trail of people that they touched, that they influenced, that carry on your legacy. Uh, in my mind, that might be more important than anything. Uh, I know for me personally, and for the leaders that I've been encountered, the goal is, again, you breed as many of them as you can, and hopefully every darn one of them is better than you were. Yeah. What does that look like for for a leader that might be running an organization that's used to being, uh, is, you know, there's a number of people come to mind that is used to being kind of the go-to person on everything. Yeah. And I always say, you know, you can either be the go-to person on everything or you can be the leader. You can't be both how do they get out of that trap? I mean, how if you're talking to somebody who really is not used to necessarily trying to develop other leaders, but they are trying to develop followers, how do they start to make that shift? Yeah, well, you know, you and I talked about a minute ago something that is an underappreciated asset. Vulnerability, to be very candid, was something that I had a hard time wrestling with because I came up in an era kind of like the one that you described. The leader is almost a mythic figure, iconic follow me and we will win. And it took me a long time to realize, as we said, if I can admit vulnerability, and if I can work with five people that are part of my direct staff and say to them in no uncertain terms, my goal is to make sure that we make you, for discussion's sake, the next CEO. So I'm going to challenge you and I'm probably going to put you in positions where maybe we actually run the risk of failing. You know, in our culture right now, failure is a terrible word, but you know, and I know that it's okay to fail. Fail quickly, learn from it, and move forward. But you have to have a leader that's capable and courageous enough to admit, as you said, I don't have all the answers, but it's tough to do. And I think you and I had this conversation, especially when you're driven by the next quarter's earnings. You know, there's a turnstile of senior leaders, and they're trying to get things done and make sure they hit their number. Sometimes it's hard to take a step back and say, wait, we can hit the number. But are we really building for two years out, five years out, 10 years out? That's the harder question. Mm, that is a that is such a hard question because trying to balance that and that that really is is reality. And whether it's a public company or not, you're just trying so hard to drive that incremental lift over the short term and really make sure the numbers obviously are indicating a healthy direction. Uh, but at the same point, as a leader, you have to be you have to do things that aren't necessarily going to provide a return on investment in that short term. Um, 
so it's a tough balance, right? It's really difficult for that leader that wants to be a transformational leader, but might feel the pressure of saying, hey, I feel like I've got to be a transactional leader. I'm not going to even be in this role much longer. That's right. And, and no one can assume or sit here in a podcast and say it's easy. It, it, it's not. But, you know, going back to the larger issue, I, I, I finally realized in my own journey that the most important resource that was ever at my beck and call was human capital. And human capital, when it's fully engaged and when people recognize that they are aligned, can do amazing things. And so what I try, what I still try to do is when I talk with leaders is to help them understand that, yeah, the quarter is important, but if you're not investing in human capital, at some point, at some point you'll hit a wall. I, I work with a lot of leaders, John, who they chase profitability, which means more resources against the right activities, but they lose sight of productivity, which means less resources against the wrong activities. Mm -hmm. In the life science industry, you toss a lot of stuff out there and you hope you hit your sales goals. But what we try to impress on people is you've got to take at least a intermediate or maybe ideally a longer term view if you really want to make an organization healthy for next year and five years from now. Yeah, because ultimately that's your, your if you're just focused on that short term, one is you're going to lose people. You're going to lose great people. Right. Uh, yeah. you know, I've always said there's three things your top people really need, and that's to feel like they are growing. They also need to feel like they're making an impact and not just an impact, but as big of an impact as they can make. And they have to feel important and valued and appreciated. And if those are not there, you run the risk of losing those people. It's just a matter of when. And I see that with leaders a lot, uh, running organizations and they're frustrated because they're losing their top people and maybe even consistently losing them. And that may be part of the reason. Yeah. I, you know, I tell you, you, you referenced something there that we aren't talking a, a lot about now, but you know, before COVID hit in this country, in the U S somewhere around two thirds of the American workforce was technically disengaged. Now those numbers vary uh, dependent on industry, but the Gallup group, which does has done 80 years worth of work on this is pretty emphatic in saying, if you look at 2018, 2019, about two out of every three workers are disengaged. And for millennials, the figure was even higher. Now that was before COVID. So now we have people living in a cocoon, working on average, the data says on average, probably two to three hours longer per day than they were before. I wonder what the disengagement figures will be when we look at 2021. I, I think they're going to be I would dare say the global disengagement was about 85% pre-COVID. I think we'll probably see in this country 85 to 90% of the workforce. I'm working with people right now that basically are throwing up their hands in frustration. They, they say, you know, Tim, in the first two to three months, it was okay. But now I go from seven o'clock to six o'clock in the evening. And by golly, people drop meetings in because they can do it. I, I live over the company store. I can't take a break. So I say all that because I think the difference is if you work with a leader who gets it, who cares about you, who trusts you, who has a common purpose with you, I think they will help us navigate that. And to your point, those who can't, I think they're going to be exposed. And I think they will be. They are being exposed in yeah. a big way. What about and that's a, that's a really interesting point and the level of engagement, you know, I. You know, and I know when you when you walk through an office, you can just you can sense people's levels of engagement. You kind of take the temperature of the 
the room or the culture. You just have a whole different level of perceptivity that you don't have now. It's just very difficult. And just the ability to put your arm on somebody's shoulder and just, you know, after a tough message or conversation, you lose all of that now. So I know leaders are are challenged with that. They're frustrated. They're really wondering, how do I keep or bring back that level of engagement when I am doing what we're doing, we're looking through a computer. How, what's your advice to somebody like that? Yeah, well, I, you know, two words. It's a radical concept, but be human. Be human. Um, I've worked with leaders who in times of crisis have rallied troops, and I've worked with leaders who in times of crisis have provoked and exacerbated the crisis. The people that I think are the difference maker, it goes back to those five questions. If I'm working with someone who I consider credible, who's committed to helping make me better, who share a common purpose with me, I'll follow them, but I will, I will blindly follow people who by their actions answer the last two questions. Do you care about me? And can I trust you? And I always go back to that when I'm working now with my executive coaching sessions, because a lot of people are asking the same question. And my question is always the same. How would people answer those things about you by your actions? Because the problem with it, you know, we talked about it. Everybody knows the words to the script. Do I care about my people? Oh, yes, I care about my, they can trust me. Well, no, here's the problem with those five questions. Your actions are what answer them, not, not your words. Everybody knows the words, but uh, I, I work with some people right now who, when COVID broke, made personal phone calls to every one of the employees in their large division to say, we're going to work together. I don't know what the answers are, but understand that my commitment is, and et cetera, et cetera. And the effect was stunning. It was galvanizing. And then I work with other leaders who say, well, I got a lot of things to do right now. We'll We'll take care of that later. No, the most important resource you have used to drive home every night. Now they live in a house, but the most important is still the people that work for you. That's, I think that's everything. Yeah. I, I, I got chills as you're going through and explain and sharing that, you know, that leader that has such a commitment to their people to reach out and make phone calls like that. And, you know, people forget that leaders forget that how important communication is. And even the difference between, you know, the, a call versus a text or a video chat versus just a phone call. I mean, the, there's different levels of having those conversations that make all the difference in the world too. People need to see our faces yeah. now, especially when there's confusion or uncertainty or concern or anxiety, uh, things like that. That's very I want true. to talk about a, executive presence because you talk about that. I know you work with leaders on that. And that I've, I've had a lot of leaders ask that question, how do you build that? So I'd love to get your take on two things is what is executive presence or leadership presence and how do you build that? Yeah, well, it's a good question because I think executive presence is sort of cloaked in mystery. A lot of uh, executives, a lot of companies refer to it as the it factor. I was in a uh, debrief session one time years ago and we were talking about a candidate for a position in the organization. And one of the people at the table said, well, I don't know what it is about this individual, but when this person walks into the room, they've got it. It's the it factor. It's it's the wow factor. They've got it. And the other candidate doesn't have it. So we spent a lot of time trying to understand and ascertain, okay, what does that actually mean? 
I don't know that there's an absolute definition, but I will tell you this, there's a pretty strong body of information that breaks down what is involved in executive presence. And it's usually three different factors, and I'll give them to you in general terms. The first and the most important is, is for lack of a better term, character slash gravitas. About two thirds, and the, the data is there if you look at uh, Center for Talent Innovation or Bates Communication, they've done a lot of work in those areas. They come back to this one thing saying, the essence of who you are is what really uh, resonates for your audience. So character slash gravitas is about two thirds of it and it's the biggest piece. And then the second piece, for lack of a better term, is substance slash communication. How you go about communicating uh, with your direct reports, with others, it's a big part of it. And then the last piece, surprisingly enough, it's only about five to 6% is style slash appearance. Now it's important if you are six foot three and you're a male, your chances of having a little bit better uh, leadership presence is better than if you're five foot seven and obese. And that's just what the data says. I don't necessarily agree with it, but style slash appearance does play a role. And so those three factors in combination are generally what goes into executive presence. That's a very general definition. How do you build it? Well, I think the way you build it is the same way you build a lot of other skills. You break it down into what's involved and behaviorally what goes into each of those characteristics. And uh, we do full day workshops on executive presence with senior executives and actually help them begin to take a look at their effect and whether or not they're demonstrating what we consider to be a high level. And it's fairly revealing because a lot of very, very, very bright executives are struggling there. And uh, I think what we hope to be able to do is to give them something that says, okay, I can sink my teeth in this. If you can remove the aura, the mystery, then it becomes something that I can begin to work on. Mm. It's interesting because that's, yeah, I, when I hear you say gravitas, I think of confidence and I think of just self-assuredness and, and that also, and I've been asked a lot about that topic, how you build that. And I, I think a lot of that comes, it's a culmination in the aggregation of these small little tiny things, which are really big things. It's the willingness to fail and consequently willingness to take some risks. It's a willingness to be vulnerable, to be authentic, to, to, uh, you know, to show your cards and, and not try to be somebody you're not. And it's also that feeling that you've got people around you that also accept your failures, your weaknesses, because you do theirs uh, as well. Is there, what else do you think comes into building somebody's confidence and getting more of that gravitas? Is there more to that? Yeah. In terms of helping others build confidence? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, if you think about, if you played any kind of sports when you were growing up, I always remind myself, in fact, I'll give you an example from the, the business world. One of the first transformational leaders I ever worked with had a unique quality that I never quite appreciated until I didn't work for him any longer. And I, in my book, The Compass Solution, I talk about it. I, and I, here's the way, here's the, the simile or the metaphor that I, I might use. It was like if you were playing a basketball game and you're one of five starters and the score's tied and there's three seconds left on the clock and there's going to be a shot taken. I always felt like in the business sense, he would look to me and say, okay, Tim, after you hit the shot, 
We're going to make sure that we hustle down court because there's a chance they could throw the length of the court. And he, it was a matter of fact that, okay, you're going to take it and you'll hit it. And then we'll go. And I remember thinking, and I was a young leader at that time. What? what? So he instilled in me a level of confidence. It was a foregone conclusion. You'll hit the shot. And so what I learned from that is this, this Pygmalion effect. If people believe they're capable of more than perhaps they've ever done before because they're looking at someone they care that they care about and that they trust, I think I think it's powerful. And to your point, even if you missed the shot, there was no, hey, how could you have done that? It was it's okay, we'll get them next time. You were the guy that should have taken the shot. And I think that's the difference maker. It's it's amazing. You know, I, I I'm I'm so passionate. I believe that great leaders move the world. I really do. And when I wrote the book, I tried to say in the preface, this is to thank those few people that changed everything for me because by rights, there's no way I should have had the career I had. I shouldn't have. I wouldn't have had I not had that brush with uh, such a rare, rare transformational leader. I I never would have happened. So to answer your question, that's at least a start in terms of building confidence. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm I'm smiling because your sports story, I had a very similar one and it was in baseball. And it was a coach that that had a very similar type of comment. Uh, I was a strikeout king. I would strike out more times than not. And uh, I was in a high pressure situation. He did a very similar thing and it turned out to be a great result. And I think leaders, you know, there there's a lot to be said, first of all, from what you learn from sports or school and the things that when you were a kid that you didn't necessarily even pay attention to, for leaders to go back and think about that and really think about, okay, because you have right away a couple of people that really made an, a really big difference in your life and you've carried that with you for many, many years and now you you are doing what you're doing because of that. I think there's a lot of people that if they thought back and said, okay, who were the teachers? Who were the coaches? Who were the, my parents? Who were my friends that, that said something that impacted me, whether it was positive or negative, and I carried it with me, and what was it and how did they say it? There's a lot to be learned from that, right? There's that, whether it was the tone or the matter-of-factness or what they said at the right time, that's leadership, and I think people don't realize that sometimes. I think you said a mouthful. You know, if we could all take the time to send a note or make a phone call or reach out and say, you know, I knew you, in my case, 30, 40 years ago, and you said something that I carried with me for the rest of my life, and I want you to know how much I appreciate that. Um, there's this myth that leaders are um, are born, and maybe someone somewhere is, but most of us, I think, are made over time like uh, clay and dropped a few times on our head. But the people that help mold us are usually the ones that stand in the background and smile and hopefully know they made a difference. But sometimes, sometimes it's worthwhile to, to go back and, and let them know that I've tried to do that, but I probably haven't done as good a job as I, I should have. And I would also say I have a lot of people that technically reported to me taught me just as much as uh, leaders that I might have reported to. I had a, a good fortune of working with a lot of people who led other people. And more often than not, I found myself stealing ideas from them. I've learned that if you take an idea from one person, it's called plagiar- plagiarism. But if you take it from a lot of people, it's called research. So I did a lot of research. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to steal that. See, there we go. <laughs> uh, that is that is great. And you know what? I, I, I think that's a great 
takeaway for listeners today to go back to those people and let them know what impact they made. You know, I, I think about speaking about sports, a, a quick story. I had, I had a coach who, Coach Pingator, who taught me in baseball a way of living life. And I never would have realized that, but I, his attitude around playing the game, I mean, he would have us sprint full speed from the bench to our positions when we were starting the top of the inning. You don't see that. I was a pitcher, so he would. I, I had to sprint <laughs> the, the thirty feet or whatever it was, fifty feet, and it was. It would take people by surprise. Yeah. Uh, he would make us dive head first into first base instead of running through the bag. You know, pass back. I mean, things you don't see, but it taught. What happened is we got this confidence level. We had this feeling that we were untouchable. We intimidated other teams. I mean, they'd see us and they'd say, "Wow, what are these guys doing?" But it was a really uh, life-changing season because I carried that mentality through a lot of my life that go for it and play, you know, play as hard as you can. And, you know, you don't go halfway. You go all the way when you're going to play. So it's amazing the impact that leaders make on our lives. You know, it's funny. uh, I'm curious. Why do you think that type of approach uh, had such an impact uh, to include intimidation on the other teams? Why, why do you think that happened? I, I think that it, um, I think in a way, any time somebody sees, they saw us playing our hearts out and doing things that other people aren't willing to do. And it was an attitude. It was a culture. It was a certain type of gravitas that we had. We had a presence that before yeah. we even played or as soon as we started playing, they realized, wow, these, these, these guys are made a little differently than everybody else. I think that's what did it. I think it, I think it does too. That's why I asked the question. I, I mentioned I do a lot of work in, in team building in, in the business sector, but you just described something that I think has tremendous applicability to the business world. I, when I work with teams, one of the first things we try to impress on them is, look, you, the greatest teams have a level of trust, you know, whether it's uh, Patrick Lencioni's five dysfunctions of teams. Every great team I've worked with, whether it's a group of five or 5,000, they have a, a constancy of purpose that other people look at and go, whoa, whoa. And I'm sure those teams that saw your, whether it was high school or college, saw that they saw they're unified. And I've always said, if you have a constancy of purpose and if you have an integration of effort, then ultimately you'll have shared ownership. And we, 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 we preach those three principles, but your example, actually, I may plagiarize that too. I have to write that down because I think that's actually a very good example that unfortunately we don't see it very often in business world. We're disjointed. We're, you know, we're herky jerky. This does this left hand has no idea. The right hand even exists, but occasionally you get that symmetry. It's like they say, uh, you can't whistle a symphony. It takes an orchestra. Yeah. It's well, it's interesting because, you know, I remember back and, and we were all hesitant to do it, to dive into first base. But yeah. once the first guy did it, it was easier for the second guy. And then before you knew it, if you didn't do it, you were kind of <laughs> the odd guy out here. You were not part of the team unless you did yeah. it. So it was this yeah. great unifying thing that brought us together. And we didn't even realize the impact it would have on the other team. Did the coach, does the coach know what you ended up being and ended up doing? You know what? He doesn't. And I, I, I my takeaway from this is to reach out to him. So Joe Pingator, if you're out there listening, uh, you're going to get a call from me. That's awesome. Good for you. Definitely. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. 
Wow, this is terrific. I, I so I, I know we're a little short on time here. There's so much more I want to talk to you about. But what would you say right now for leaders um, that are now, hopefully we're soon to come out of uh, you know COVID and and now be- get back to somewhat of a normalcy and get back to what used to be the norm, but now it's it's different. I mean. What does a leader do now? Now that they go back, do they, is it is it the same as it was before? Is it are we what learnings are we taking? How would how does the future of leadership look from here? That's a great question. You know, I, I think the the best leaders are probably going to be ask asking the same question you just asked. What are the insights from this past eighteen months, and what do they mean to our business and to our future? That's a powerful question. Really good leaders will ask more questions then offer declarations. That's the first thing. And I think they will do their best to make sure that they're touching the human spirit and helping people get to the next level. I don't know. Nobody knows what post-COVID world is going to be, but there will be an after. I tend to think that one of the things that will happen from COVID is that, to your very first point, the real leaders will be revealed. And I say again, most managers focus on how are we going to get to our results it's you know the what is the result how will we get there leaders focus on a little bit more of the why and the how but the transformational leaders i think they focus a lot more on the who on the who the the human equation there's a quote by emerson that i use when i'm working with leaders it says who you are is speaking so loudly that i can't hear what you're saying I love that quote. And I think that's probably going to be the path that the great leaders take moving forward, connecting with people, helping them find their own identity and figuring out what the future is going to need to be. Do you think a lot of leaders will find them themselves becoming irrelevant a little bit if they haven't become a certain type of person? And if so, what type of leader would become irrelevant in the future? Yeah, I think they a lot of leaders... I use that term loosely, have already become irrelevant. I work with clients right now. They're asking hard questions in the life sciences. How many leaders do we need? (laughs) Maybe maybe we've learned we need far less than than we thought. And so I guess my simple answer is uh, circumstances have a tendency to reveal. And in this circumstance, I think we're going to find some leaders are already there. They've lost their groups uh, you're going to see in certain industries, I think we're already seeing some massive attrition, which means for the few that are really, really good, I think it's going to be an incredible time. You know, I mentioned the Gallup group earlier. I'm a big fan of their research. Before COVID, if you looked at senior leaders based on some of their research and asked the question, how many of your management team, what percentage would you keep? Because they're truly difference makers. The answer was usually about 15 to 20%. Wow. So that means you jettison, you know, 80%, maybe more. I tend to think that's probably about right. I think for almost every company, there's something like 10% that are transformational and about 80 to 90% that are transactional. Hmm. It's almost, that's pretty amazing. I mean, could you, I mean, is that transformational leader that much more impactful where a company literally could have less, significantly less transformational leaders and and do significantly better and more yeah. impact and larger reach. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, there's a there's a body of information that looks at the difference between what they consider to be the truly great leaders 
and the average, and the numbers are, are stunning. The problem is exactly what you said. So how do you build transformational leaders? You know, what do you do? How do you do it? I've always said, and I know we're running low on time. If you look at most people leaders, all of them basically do in some way, three things. I mean, I hate to make it too simple, but every great leader can, first of all, attract and recruit exceptional talent. The second thing that every great leader can do is they can develop and retain that talent. Third thing, and this is the difference maker, is they can build the individual pieces into a whole that exceeds the sum of its parts. Your definition of that baseball coach, I think, is a classic example of the third piece. He took those individual pieces and said, this is the way we play the game. We're going to be greater than the sum of our parts. And that, I think, is where you're going to find the realm of transformational leaders. But you've got to look at each of those and ask, are you doing the things to develop that quality of leader? I'm spending a lot of time now helping companies in the post-COVID world build their leadership development curriculum, including some of the things that we're talking about now, executive presence, communication, uh, leadership competencies and capabilities, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a rich time to be in the consulting world, especially for those companies that are pretty darn serious now. It's in the aftermath of saying we need a higher caliber athlete in our leadership roles. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think it starts with people understanding the definition of leadership and what is a transformational leader. And then it's a real, it's probably a different recruiting process, uh, interviewing process when people are bringing people into their organization and of course, you know, the development of them. But I just think about when I've hired leaders in the past uh, or other leaders that I've worked with have hired leaders, the interview process is, is really not looking for that. It's not set up the recruiting process necessarily the standard one to identify those transformational leaders. Yeah. So that's interesting. You is there a certain like lens you want to look through, or things that you want to look for, or uh, examples that you want to look for in somebody's past that would tell you that or clue you yeah. into that? I think well, it's a it's a very difficult uh, answer, and it has a number of different layers. You know, I came up in an era where the standard fare was always the best predictor of future performance is past performance, and so we would always look at levels of past performance, the conditions they operated in, the attitudes, values, and feelings, the knowledge and skills. And we would take that and extrapolate and say, okay, given that, can this person be a great leader? And I think that is probably a good starting point, but I don't think it's all. I think, um, I think we're in an intellectual slash information age where we need, again, a, a lot more right brain thinkers than maybe we've had in the past left brain thinkers in the world I came from uh, were predominant, logical, ordered, linear thinking, this, then this, then this, then this. But what I'm finding is there's a lot more of a, an appetite for people that are a little bit more creative, a little bit more right brain thinkers than they were before. And I, I think I understand why, because there was a time when, you know, if you do the right things, you'll get results. We need people that can think a little bit more outside the box. So again, I won't go into too great a detail, but I think this notion of looking at right brain in addition to left brain is probably going to be pretty important. Ironically enough, some of the people that study in the humanities are, uh, or the arts, I think, are probably going to find a place in a big part of industry that we're not a part 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, that's interesting. That's your I, I, I think you're right, without a doubt. I mean, you think about that. I mean, it's interesting because almost 
very few interviews that I've seen or been part of or whatnot do you even ask somebody about their core values. Uh, and that's probably a great starting point just in and of itself. I mean, you're going to learn so much about somebody and what's really important to them. You had said earlier about, you know, understanding that leader's mission and uh, purpose. And is that something you can align yourself with? Um, you know, understanding what somebody's life purposes and mission is, I think, is key in figuring out, is this person really a transformational leader? Yeah, that's that's beautifully said. Beautifully, you know, if you've ever read anything about uh, uh, Ernest Shackleton, the voyage of the endurance, Antarctica, oh, yeah. you know, this guy died over a hundred years ago. But they always said that Shackleton, who took people through a frozen hell and brought them all back alive, they always said he didn't hire for skills; he hired for values. He figured I can teach them the skills, but I have to have people that, when it is absolutely the darkest, when we are facing an uncertain uh, future, in fact, facing death. I have to have people that have a different core than the norm. And so he would pass on a scientist with an incredible degree and take someone that was a, a foreman uh, who was working on the docks because he saw something in the latter that he didn't see in the former. So I think you're right. Those values and some of the things that go into it probably are going to have a heavier role than in the past. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, man, this has been amazing. I've loved talking with you, and I wish we had more time because there's so much more I do want to chat with you about. Uh, but you are, without a doubt, a uh, a, a very uh, obviously an accomplished person, and you're now in a position of being able to teach other leaders how to be great leaders and organizations how to develop them. Um, where do people find out about you? How can they learn more? Well, first of all, thank you. It's been a pleasure. We only met, uh, I guess, a week ago on the line, but this has been a pleasure. And I, I'm hoping that we can continue the, the dialogue moving forward. The best place to go is thecompassalliance.com. That's my website. You'll see some of the blogs I've written, get a little bit of a sense of who I am. You can find my telephone number there, and they can always reach me at tim.cole at thecompassalliance.com. I'm always uh, ready and willing to talk to anyone. And uh, I love what I do. I'm in probably the most important chapter of my career right now because I feel like the vast majority of what I do is purposeful and there's no greater blessing. So I appreciate it. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate it as well. And uh, we will continue our conversations for sure. Um, any last bits of wisdom that uh, you'd like to leave the audience with? I know that's a broad question, but anything that uh, we left out or any uh, last uh, tidbits? Well, I think the only thing I might say is, is that leadership matters at every level, whether individual contributor or managing a company of 10,000, leadership matters. And uh, I hope that everyone is prepared to make a difference out there. Excellent. Well, I hope you come back another time when we can uh, continue our conversation, but it's been great having you on here, Tim. Thank you, John. Yeah, I'd like to thank uh, Tim Cole. We've been here uh, talking about leadership and transformational leadership. Tim is the founder of the Compass Alliance. Uh, appreciate all of you uh, for joining in today. Hope this was valuable. I'm sure it was. Uh, make sure you like, subscribe, share, add your comments, and uh, go down below, give five-star review. Of course, I uh, appreciate that. And uh, thank you for your time today, Tim. Thanks again. Look thank forward you. to seeing everybody. Take care. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader. For suggestions or inquiries about having me at your next event or personal coaching, reach me at john at loritogroup.com. Once again, that's J-O-H-N at L-A-U-R-I-T-O-G-R-O-U-P dot com. 
Thanks. Lead on.